Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. Following the U.S. decision to slap steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and other allies, questions persist about whether we are on the brink of a global trade war. RBC senior economist Nathan Jansen, he has authored a new report on this matter, and he joins us today to discuss the fallout from this trade flap ahead of this week's G7 summit in Quebec. And as if a global trade war isn't enough to worry about, Vancouver drivers have been dealing with some of the worst gas prices ever seen in the region. So is there any relief on the horizon? Sean Coakley from Cambridge Global Payments will join us later on to talk about how we ended up with these sky-high gas prices and what we should expect over the summer. But first, here's Nathan Jansen from RBC. Yeah, Kirk, I think it's going to be a few awkward moments coming up in Quebec this week. We've got the G7 summits with all those you world think? leaders. You think, uh, yeah. I wonder if they have anything to talk about, especially uh, with the U.S. slapping on those steel and aluminum tariffs about a week ago. I'm kind of looking at this as the G6 plus one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to be sitting at like the kids table for yeah. a little uh, bit of it. Yeah, well, but... good luck trying to do that. Uh, <laughs> can't, can't I, this is not the time to isolate somebody with a dunce cap in the corner. Fair enough, fair enough. But uh, RBC has released a report examining the potential fallout from this. Well, some people are saying, is there a trade war on the horizon? But we're looking at these tariffs that have been put in place and the retaliatory measures that are coming out of this. And with us today is Nathan Jansen. He is a senior economist at RBC. Nathan, great to have you back on the show. Good, thanks for having me. So this uncertainty that's going around here, is that going to be the big, big killer for a lot of global trade going forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that is that is the key. So the uh, the tariffs themselves are on uh, uh, steel and aluminum production, uh, which just isn't really that big a share of the Canadian economy. So, uh, you know, the tariffs are on about about 3% of Canadian ex- goods exports in total. Steel and aluminum trade is about, uh, or aluminum production is about a half a percent of Canadian GDP and jobs. So, uh, the direct impact isn't huge, but it's this uh, this issue that if it can be if it can be steel, if it can be target if the U.S. can be targeting steel, then they could really be targeting anything because uh, you know the steel tariffs just don't make a lot of a lot of sense. You know they're justified based on national security concerns, but this is Canada, your close one of your closest uh, allies, uh, and uh, the U.S. was a net exporter of steel uh, to both Canada and uh, Mexico uh, last year. Uh, so even if you're worried about NAFTA trade, it's like why, why, why pick on steel? So uh, yeah, I think that's that's one of the messages that was, that we're taking from it, anyways, is that uh, if it can be steel, uh, then really uh, you can have tariffs on anything, and that means you know more uncertainty for all industries that are that are trade intensive. Yeah, Tyler, you used the word awkward as we started, and uh, and and Nathan, you would know uh, from uh, previous G7 summits and G20s for that matter. The whole point of these is to actually have a, a nicely choreographed communique uh, to uh, to essentially come out of this to appear to be a unified group. <sighs> My sense would be that nobody's yet put pen to paper on what on earth they can say coming out of the G7 already because of the unpredictability of the U.S. contingent and all of this, Nathan. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, and we've seen uh, you know some some uh, hinting at least at that, that uh, discord out of the uh, out of the finance ministers uh, yeah. pre G7 meeting where you did have a uh, 
uh, a statement essentially from the the G6 to the the one uh, leftover, which is uh, the United States of, you know, just a uh, reiterating uh, kind of a collective uh, disappointment at the at the steel tariffs. Yeah, it is is it possible that you can reconcile differences at a meeting like this, or or is it more true backroom, true uh, you know side ch- other channels that in order to try to effect an, a, a better arrangement around trade. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I mean, I think the vast majority of the work uh, gets uh, done uh, behind uh, closed doors. And these are uh, these these meetings are, you know, the statements you get you get out of them are, are generally can be pretty vague. You know, well, and, it, and it's still not it's still not too hard. You know, to find uh, uh, things where uh, you know all the G seven countries uh, are agreeing. Uh, I think even among the uh, the the G6, the non-US uh, G6, there's a realization that uh, you know America is still is still a, a close ally, and uh, the American Congress uh, is uh, uh, less extreme in its views than uh, than uh, the president. Yeah. Uh, so so there is still room for for uh, you know for for a common view, but 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 certainly I think it's unusual to see the kind of uh, break uh, that we saw in the in the finance minister's uh, meeting on this weekend. Yeah, the seven countries support breathing in and out regularly, uh, th- three square meals a day. Um, I don't know. That's about it. <laughs> it has been interesting to see, you know, Canada has been, you know, very much deferential to a certain degree, you know, kind of playing nice guy with regards to all the ongoing trade negotiations we've been hearing about. What we really saw Trudeau and Freeland kind of go on the offensive after this was announced. Yeah. And, and and I wonder if we can expect, I don't know, Canada to play the nice host in Quebec this week, or do you think that there is going to be a little bit more of a hostility to the tone going on in these meetings, Nathan? Yeah, I mean I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll 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 play nice, but uh, at the same time I'm they're I'm sure also gonna be uh uh kind of reiterating that what they're what they're saying uh in these meetings uh is uh, that the 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 tariffs are unacceptable and I'm sure they're gonna be uh, making the same point that it's uh it's just uh insulting in a way to uh have them justified under uh, uh national security uh concerns even though uh I think uh, nobody in the room or anywhere else in the world thinks that uh, those tariffs are actually about uh, national security. They're all about leverage and NAFTA negotiations. But definitely, I think uh, that that tone will, will continue into those into those meetings. Part of it's also uh, in Canada. We're getting closer to uh, elections as well, so it's easy yeah. it's easy to play nice uh, when you you don't have an election for a long way off. But if you you don't want to be seen um, uh, to be giving too much to the Americans, kind of the closer we get up, get to uh, elections, even in Canada. Yeah, you could really uh, sense a slight difference in tone uh, in the interview that Justin Trudeau gave to NBC, um, where he—I know he's talked about the unpredictability of the American situation before, but he was starting to choose words, I think, that were much more deliberate in trying to put some distance between Canada and the United States. I mean, Canada's had almost this role since Trump, Trump was elected to kind of keep the peace uh, among the Western leaders, but you're right, Nathan. As as you get closer to an election, can Justin Trudeau really afford to appear to not be really bowing up to Donald Trump? Yeah, and I mean, I, and I think they've. Um, I mean, 
even behind closed doors, I think they have been uh, uh, doing a, a pretty good job. Uh, Christa, Christa uh, Freeland kind of leading the trade trade negotiations and uh, uh, pushing back on uh, on some of the ideas that have been uh, presented at, at the negotiating table. But yeah, in the, in the public uh, comments, it's uh, uh, I mean, the closer you get to an election here, the more likely you could see some of the uh, the the uh, more public pushback. Yeah. And if we're looking at the potential that this could have on the economy, which is what the public's going to be, you know, of course, concerned about, I, I mean, you write in your report that it'd be moderately negative, but manageable impacts. So w- what do you mean by that here for the countries involved? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, you know, just if you're, say, in the steel and aluminum industry in Canada, uh you then those industries might get hurt more, uh, but those industries just aren't actually that large of a share of the economy. So I mentioned about half percent of uh, Canadian GDP and jobs. The other issue is just how much even activity gets uh, hurt in those industries uh, directly. And I think uh, uh, you know one example where we had big tariffs and didn't necessarily have a huge impact. There, the huge impact that we expected was the softwood lumber uh, tariffs uh, in BC. And so the U.S. Uh, slapped uh, big uh, softwood lumber tariffs on last year. Um, but at the same time, U.S. Uh, home demand is uh, booming, and uh, there's not another source for softwood lumber that's easy easy to get at. So, so it, you know, a, a big chunk of those tariffs ended up having to be paid uh, by American producers and consumers rather than uh, the BC uh, forestry sector. Uh, and, uh, you know, the same kind of dynamic could play out with these uh, steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, yeah. The U.S. doesn't really have another source uh, to get their steel. So, they're, you know, there's, a, there's an argument that, uh, you know, they're just going to have to pay a big chunk of the, of the upfront cost themselves. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, though, which is that around softwood lumber and now around steel and aluminum, um, the American consumer eventually has to pay, but doesn't have to pay necessarily right away. The products can take some time to get through the chain of production uh, to eventually get to the consumer. Are we reaching that point quite soon, though, Nathan, where the American consumer is going to start paying for Donald Trump's petulance? Yeah, I think I think I think we are, but the um, the issue is the, the tariffs that have been imposed have been imposed uh, to date actually aren't all that large, and that was one of the things we looked at in, in our note. Is if you kind of add up everything that they've uh, that they've imposed to date, plus uh, you know they're talking about imposing tariffs on fifty billion dollars worth of imports from China. Uh, if you add all that up, it still might raise kind of the effective uh, U.S. Uh, tariff rate on all of their imports uh, by, you know, less less than 1%. Right. Uh, so it's not huge. And in the U.S., uh, 70% of consumer spending is on services and only a portion of goods spending is, is imported. So I guess the, the, the point being the, these, these uh, measures that have been imposed to date aren't actually so large uh, compared to the size of the economy. And yet... And yet, how how dangerous is it, though, that this might escalate, given that Canada has, is slapping uh, retaliatory measures on, which Donald Trump will eventually figure out, balances this, uh, does he then start loading on other ones? And we then begin into this tit-for-tat type of exchange. Yeah, that's, that's, that's I mean, the concern. That's the real overarching uh, concern is that you spiral into something like a, like a global trade war. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I guess one of the points is we're just we're not there yet, even with uh, even with retali- retaliatory action uh, from Canada. And I think I think the earlier uh, point on when uh, the U.S. consumer is going to have to pay is a is a good one in terms of how quickly we could escalate into into a global trade war. Um, there's kind of a you could almost say there's a there's a political sweet spot in the U.S. Um, where you want to look really tough on trade. Uh, but you don't actually want to do anything large enough that'll increase prices for consumers in a way that'll that'll really get noticed and affect you at the ballot box. Yeah. Uh, so there's so to the extent that they can, you know, impose, you know, significant tariffs on specific sectors uh, that don't kind of derail the overall macroeconomic backdrop and then get, uh, you know, blow up the rhetoric around those. That's kind of a, a political uh, sweet spot. Yeah, I think we talked last week, Kirk, about how there are now tariffs on inflatable boats coming from the United States. So <laughs> it's right. like one of those very precise. Did you get yours? You got yours. I, I got mine yeah. right in yeah. the nick. Good, good for you. Yeah. yeah. But, and, uh, uh, and Manny and Petty. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. One. Oh, manicure and pedi- pedicure uh, preparation. So, okay. <laughs> I got caught on that one. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. That's Nathan Jansen. He is a senior economist at RBC. And Sean Coakley from Cambridge Global Payments is going to join us next to talk about Vancouver's soaring gas prices. Car drivers across Metro Vancouver have been hurting big time at the gas pumps with prices soaring past $1.50 a liter before the summer has even kicked off. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd kill for $1.50 now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, it's buck so, sixty. Yeah, buck sixty. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I missed the days it was $1. ten, and you thought that uh, was steep. No, forget about that. <laughs> Long gone. I, I can't even remember those days. <laughs> well, the big question on my mind, and I'm sure on the minds of others, is how do we get to this point and our prices going to get worse or will they ever get lower depending on how far out we look well joining us today to talk more about about gas gouging is sean coakley market strategist at cambridge global payments thanks for joining us sean thanks guys well what is behind this because we've we've had the bump of about 20 or so cents in the last couple of months well i think it's really important for people to really understand that uh oil and gas is probably the most cyclical industry that exists on the planet Right. So really where we're sitting at right now is a position where we haven't seen a lot of investment in oil and gas production or pipeline carrying capacity since at least 2014. And now that lack of investment has basically precipitated uh, supply constraints globally and in the face of increasing demand due to higher economic growth, we're now seeing uh, much tighter conditions in terms of the physical supply of crude oil. And that's just translating into higher prices at the pump. Well, given the fact that it to invest in the infrastructure needed to invest in pipelines, it takes many, many years to bring these online. Can we expect more of the same in the months and years to come? Yeah, I don't have anything positive to say on this call, unfortunately. So <laughs> really, really, when it comes down to it, um, We've seen a bit of a uh, repeat. If you look at the financial markets, because uh, oil trades as a financial uh, commodity as much as a physical one, we've seen almost uh, two weeks of declines in oil prices for West Texas Intermediate and Brent, which are the two international benchmarks. 
but that's l unlikely to translate into any meaningful price relief at the pumps because most of that was predicated on investors just taking profits on positions uh, that they've had for some time. In terms of looking at the supply of the physical physical commodity itself, you're precisely right. The lead times take years, and that's why the industry itself is so cyclical. So realistically, we can expect at least a directional move higher for at least the foreseeable future. You could be looking at a few years of this. Wow. And obviously, governments have a dependence on this revenue, because I think right now, if I'm not mistaken, a, a liter of, of gas carries with it more than 50 cents of just sheer tax on it. Um, there's no way that governments are going to start to forego that in order to give consumers relief, is there? No, I wouldn't foresee that at all. Um, the, uh, especially here in British Columbia. I mean, if you go out further into the valley, gas is significantly cheaper just because of the tax regime that's in place out there relative to us here in the city. And um, because those are such, such substantial sources of revenue for the government, I don't expect any sort of relief on the tax front. Mm -hmm. As you no doubt know, of course, you've had a lot of news over the past couple of weeks regarding the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Part of the issues tied to that was Alberta passing Bill 12, which would allow it to cease exports to BC of oil and gasoline. If Alberta were to jump on that and in fact curb exports, what could we expect when it comes to the prices we pay at the pump here? Well, in BC, it would be a disaster. So in terms of like where we actually get our fuel, um, significant proportion of it actually comes from Alberta, but another significant proportion of it also comes from Washington State. So if we're left without uh, fuel from Alberta, we would have to pick up additional supplies from the United States. And just given the, the lack of really robust transportation network moving north to south, uh, at least on the coast here, um, you can expect much, much higher prices at the pump. But I really think that that type of uh, outcome is actually unlikely. I think it was more of like a negotiating or, or leverage, political leverage that was trying to be exerted on the part of the provincial government in Alberta. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, it's very unlikely that the federal government will allow two provinces to continue to be in conflict like that, especially when you're talking about cutting the supplies of something that's so essential uh, to uh, like a province that has four and a half million people in it. Yeah. I, I wonder whether Andrea Horbach is, is already uh, beginning to uh, regret her commitment in the campaign in Ontario to, um, to basically uh, uh, tamper down prices for gas uh, at the start of a long weekend that, that she mm -hmm. actually promised that's part of her promise package. Now here she is perhaps going to form the government and might be saddled with, uh, with her own words on this, but is there anything that governments really can do? No, uh, realistically, no, uh, other than reducing taxes, there's not much that the government can do to influence oil and gas prices. And to be honest, most, even large uh, corporate organizations and global trading firms that trade 
billions of dollars worth of the economy or commodity a year are not able to influence uh, the oil and gas market um, beyond like in a material amount. Uh, the market itself is much larger than uh, any one individual player, and it has a way of um, basically punishing those that try and uh, corner the market. I think when you look at uh, potential relief from politicians or from political policy, the best angle that you're going to look to take is something like um, allowing uh, further investment in pipeline capacity because the actual one of the biggest key drivers of the pricing differentials between physical commodities of oil and also why oil is so expensive right now is just the lack of uh, infrastructure that can move it to where um, it needs to be. It's not necessarily a, a complete lack in supply of the commodity itself. It's a lack in the ability to actually move it to where it's going to be refined and then later, laterally consumed. And those type of investments take years in order to actually take place. So if you're really looking for a quick relief from the government, there's not a lot that they can do without just completely blowing a hole through their balance sheet. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Horvath in, in the province of Ontario, if she follows through on that commitment, is going to find that to be a very expensive promise. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so without additional pipeline capacity in the short term, what is the broader impact on, say, BC's economy the, when we start to see higher gas prices? Well, certainly we're going to see a, a lot more inflation. Not necessarily that's going to feed through to uh, indexes of price inflation, but certainly it's going to feed into the cost of other goods as well. Um, obviously, it's going to impact uh, consumers that are now going to have more of their wallet share that's basically going to cover fuel costs. And we could see a knock-on hit on uh basically the the retail or consumption parts of the economy. So people that are now facing higher fuel costs are now less likely to buy a new TV and or go out on a trip or those yeah. type of purchases as a result. So that's where really where we're going to start to see the, the impact in the short term. And then also we can see a generalized increase in prices as well uh, as the higher fuel prices uh, feed into all the other um, things that get transported into the province. But it's very curious the behavior uh, sitting here in the city of Vancouver uh, uh, provides you because when you drive, say, into the Fraser Valley or if you drive over the border to Point Roberts or down to Blaine, you almost feel like you're getting, it's like you're on a bargain drive all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, it, it, so it's not necessarily keeping people attached to the city because the second that they leave, they can fill up and save $30, $35 a fill-up. It's crazy. Yeah, and go and buy other groceries and yeah. bring south of the border. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it's, so even though the Canadian dollar is weak against the American dollar, your, you know, your gas dollar is, is a tremendous bargain down there. Uh, mm -hmm. So I wonder, Sean, whether, whether you know, we're, we're not necessarily changing our behavior yet uh, to, to, uh, to take a look at what the big hit is here when we've got relief seemingly just outside of our, uh, you know, our driving distance. Yeah, there's some some of us like myself that live downtown that make it very difficult to get out to, to the yeah. Fraser Valley and Point Roberts to take yeah. care of that type of deal. But I think, I think that they're like I have friends that live out in the valley, and I think that they're 
certainly taking advantage of that price differential and uh like it does make sense to to go out there because you're seeing such a substantial do they decline. bring do they bring you like a little container of gas as a gift every day like a, <laughs> it's like a it's like a bottle uh, of wine or something like that I, yeah. i'm lucky if i get cheese from the states oh uh, sorry about that <laughs> I read a, an interesting report this week, Sean, from the International Energy Agency, and they're projecting over the next two years that the number of electric vehicles on the road will triple, maybe even quadruple. Now, the numbers we're dealing with are fairly small. There's only about 3 million electric vehicles on the road as of last year. But do you think if we start to see gas prices continue to climb, we face resource constraints, challenges with pipelines, people maybe start to say, okay, instead of paying a buck sixty, a buck seventy a liter, I'm going to invest in an electric vehicle and just be done with going to the pump? Yeah, it's almost certainly to happen. It's actually a really interesting story because while it may take twenty or thirty years before electric vehicles really start to replace uh like uh oil oil vehicles or normal conventionally internal combustion engines Really, what we've seen historically, and this is even shown nowadays, like the 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 number of trucks and SUVs being sold now is exponentially higher than it was in 2014, the last time that we had high oil prices. So consumer behavior changes quite quickly. It's actually very interesting because even Ford has announced recently that they're going to move away from selling sedans and fuel-efficient vehicles to focus on uh, SUVs and trucks, which are a higher-margin product. The challenge with that is oil prices change and consumer behavior changes as a result of that. So I'd really expect to see that because of these higher oil prices, you could see a change in the type of vehicles that people buy yeah. uh, really quite quickly. Um, I know a lot of people that have, have purchased hybrid vehicles in the last few years just as a result of higher oil prices. So those are the type of consumption changes that you see as a result of higher oil prices. And I really think that we're going to see that some more of that in the future. Yeah. But what you're talking about is the more visible evidence of, uh, of gas prices having an impact on an individual. What we don't really detect all that well is the impact on shipping, on mm-hmm. on driving, on delivery of packages, on transport of produce, on all kinds of things like that? I mean, is this bound to uh, to to affect a higher degree of inflation in our economy before terribly long? Absolutely, and that's where it shows up because uh, the goods, the the price of goods that are being transported go higher. So if you you can actually tease out and find that data quite easily, but that is something that your normal person is not going to invest the time in because it's simply quite boring, actually. So really, when you, <laughs> that type of information is out there, and we can see that actually is starting to affect uh, inflation. We've actually seen inflation pick up since uh, Q3 of last year, and a lot of that has to do with uh, broader increases in commodity prices in general, and I'm talking stuff like copper and other base metals, but oil fits into that as well. Oil is really just kind of like a new arrive or a new arrival to the increase in commodity prices that we've seen in the last uh, three quarters. But in actuality, it, it's likely that the, these inflationary pressures are going to actually grow as we head into, say. 2019 and 2020. So what we can expect to see is 
uh, inflation actually starting to move beyond that 2% threshold that the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve in the United States really have. So that's something that we're watching closely because it it, it affects uh, interest rate policy in in uh, in the United States and Canada, and those are the biggest drivers of uh, most asset prices is uh, interest rate changes. So. It's really something that we expect to see more of is uh, higher inflation going into the future. Uh, oil and gas as is a big part to play in that, but there's other commodities and wages are also increasing as well. So generally, we do expect to see higher prices in the future. Speaking of interest rates, uh, we had uh, the Bank of Canada choose not to increase its overnight rate, but I think the ex- expectation is that we're going to see a rate hike maybe this summer. Uh, how, what did you read into what the bank had to say? So effectively what they're saying is that the next meeting, the interest rate is on, uh, interest rate rise is on. So we've we've heard of uh, dovish uh, increases. This was a hawkish not do anything. So basically... If you look at uh, the tone of the meeting itself, they've effectively told the market that they're going to increase rates at the next meeting. If you look at implied pricing on uh, interest rate futures, the market itself has moved from like a 50-50 chance of a rate rise at the next BOC meeting to a 75% probability of a rate rise. So as a result, we've already seen uh, pricing in the market change as a result of that. But we really do anticipate, unless we see some sort of strange exogenous event, like maybe Trump decides to put on even more tariffs, uh, we really do believe that the Bank of Canada is going to increase interest rates at the next meeting. Sean, we could talk to you for hours. I really appreciate you sharing your insight with us. Thanks for coming on the show, as always. Absolutely. Anytime. That's Sean Coakley, market strategist at Cambridge Global Payments. And that's it for BIB Today Today. Listen to us, of course, every day. And we have our podcasts up at BIB.com. And, of course, you can subscribe to us through iTunes, through Stitcher. Give us five stars as a rating. That would be great. Help us uh, keep our... uh, keep our landing uh, very well in in, uh, in, in this world. Um, we also want to uh, make you clear that you can subscribe to us through our newsletters uh, as well at BIV.com slash newsletters. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you next time. 